and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals, and a very warm welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I hope you had the kind of Christmas break that you needed and aren't putting too much pressure on yourself to have the most amazing 2020. Personally, I'm really looking forward to maintaining and taking care of the things that I've already established, be they friendships, this podcast or other side hustles, as opposed to inventing a brand new routine and set of priorities for myself. Anyway, uh, enough about me. It's uh, it's worth mentioning the Oscar nominations uh, briefly, which came out yesterday, um, and they were quite shambolic in their continued lack of representation for women and people of colour, uh, particularly in the big five categories. And if you're on Twitter, I'm sure you'll have read much more well-articulated rage than I can offer here. Uh, But what I will say is that the best documentary category um, is really brilliant and contains four films that have a woman director or co-producer and also present a really global perspective. Uh, So there are small positives to be taken from the otherwise mediocre offering. And now back to the podcast. I've got a really wonderful lineup of guests over the next few weeks. And the first of those is Alexa Reisbeck. Alexa is a technician, or what you might formally know as a projectionist, at the BFI South Bank, um, as well as being an artist and academic working to highlight and practice with celluloid film. Um, It's quite a nerdy and technical chat in the best way possible, I think. There might be some terms uh, that you're not sure what they are, Um, (laughs) so feel free to pause and Google. I knew very little about what it takes to project a film, uh, despite having been to countless 35mm screenings at the BFI and having watched silent films on a projector at university, so it felt quite overdue to hear Alex talk through the process. We also talk about how it feels to work in a part of the industry that has a bit of a sell-by date on it uh, and can be quite exclusionary, um, as well as Alex's artistic work and what she's doing to try and raise the profile of the profession. Uh, I hope more than anything you learn something um, from this interview. Uh, there's a whole world that operates behind us in the projection room and I'm really grateful to Alexa for letting me peek behind the curtain. This is episode 41 of Best Girl Grip. with what was your path to projection and how you discovered that it was a career that even existed? Okay, so uh, one of my first jobs when I was in college was uh, uh, to work in the cinema and I joined the cinema as an usher and at the time the cinema wasn't even built, it was uh, being built alongside the complex that's going in the town centre that I live nearby. Yeah, I basically got a job there and I started ushering, I started in the box office and kind of uh, tearing tickets and cleaning screens and cleaning up after lots of very happy children. <laughs> popcorn um, Absolutely, <laughs> lots of popcorn, lots of sweets and uh, lots of other things that <laughs> it's probably not good to talk about. And the thing that sort of interested in me was this kind of area of the cinema that we basically weren't able to go to because it was kind of uh, locked off. There were always signs saying no entries, uh, certain staff only type thing, you know, uh, trained staff only. And uh, we never kind of got to see what was going on behind the scenes. So I was kind of really intrigued and it took kind of quite a long time. Uh, I was 17 at the time, it took quite a long time, but I managed to get friendly with a projectionist. And then one of them eventually allowed me to go in and see this room that I hadn't seen for sort of two years. And um, I was just blown away by sort of the mechanics of it, the kind of, you know, um, the noise, the sounds, um, the smells even, kind of just the atmosphere, because it was like very dark and all these kind of machines were ticking away and 
showing all these films. And yeah, I was just really amazed by it. And sort of very, very gradually, um, they actually allowed me to start print checking a few films. So basically, uh, I, I didn't go and work there at all, but they would get films in, they would make them up, and then they needed people to watch them all the way through just to make sure the reels were in the wrong order or there was a problem with them, you know. If something were to like be wrong, how do you like make note of that? Because presumably on a screen, there's not, it's not like a, there's time codes or anything like that. No, I mean, we, you're kind of trained, I mean, it was my first time, so I, you know, I didn't have much training at all, but um, you basically have to count the joins going through, you have to have an eye to see that the joins are going through. Um, and you have to kind of just check there were no sort of large scratches, so any like black scratches um, or green scratches. And at the time, I didn't really know what that meant, but basically I had to just check and make sure the image looked nice and pristine, which is what I did. Um, and I, I did that, and it was all great. But at that point, I was going on to university, so I basically uh, moved away from my hometown. And I got work again at another cinema, and again, uh, was sort of at the box office, uh, but I had to basically start all over again, you know, in terms of trying to get back into the projection room. And again, it was quite closed off. Again, there was kind of this high wall up and it was really difficult to kind of, you know, uh, find my way in there. Um, but eventually, after sort of proving my worth, um, it was my general manager, the manager who ran the entire cinema, who kind of backed me to take a role up there. But um, originally, um, I wasn't able to get there at all. It was only when um, there was no projection manager in place, as in the previous one had left, that my general manager went right. There's a, there's a gap there, you go in and start learning and then we'll hire a new manager and tell him that you're going to start working there. Um, and there's absolutely no formal anything, no training or no sort of formal schooling as such. You don't go away anywhere to learn or um, it's very much you have to shadow people. Uh, and basically at the start I was called a ghost and I was uh, paid the wage on the floor. I certainly wasn't paid as a film projectionist. And I had to shadow the projectionist and basically watch what they did and learn what they did to try and pick up the skills myself. And then very quickly you're kind of dropped in it and you have to either sink or swim. So then <laughs> that's where you kind of uh, get to prove your worth and thankfully I did. So <laughs> It does even sound like a very sustainable model. I mean, first off, the thing that strikes me is that it was so closed off. Um, and why do you think that is? I think it's the nature of film projection. I think, um, and it comes from basically how cinema developed, because um, originally they were show men and women, um, and there were women <laughs> doing it as well, with their sort of bias going travelling the country and going into town halls and stuff and showing this amazing, amazing sort of technology off to all these people. But then because of the nitrate fires that came from the really inflammable film, uh, safety measures started being put in place, they built the projection boxes, and at the the first ones were actually metal boxes, <laughs> you know, like they were uh, the projectionist was enclosed with the film, and it would be them that die, not the audience. Should <laughs> something go wrong? And then uh, when sort of thing, it, I mean, film got safer much much after that, but uh, the projection boxes remained because by that point, now cinema would come in, and you know, we weren't show people anymore. We were, you know, just part of the mechanics of showing a film. So all of that had to be hidden. But I think those kind of codes of work kind of just stayed fixed and I mean it's also a dangerous place if you don't know what you're doing you're walking in there and you're playing around with equipment you could get hurt so um, there's that element of danger as well but also it's um, you can't just have people walking in because you're going to be disturbing the concentration of people trying to work um, they could potentially sort of damage something or it, it was lots of sort of reasons but it's sort of been that way for a very long time. 
And you mentioned there like the high risk nature, like element of danger, but also the concentration required. Did it take you quite a while to kind of A, learn the skills, but also to to know within yourself that you could do them and and not mess up and to be left alone to do something? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It took a... I mean, you can train someone and to run a film on their own, maybe, you know, maybe relatively quickly, maybe in a few weeks, but it's the experience that counts because it's when something goes wrong, your ability to handle that, and that's where the learning comes, and that takes five, six years of every single day running lots and lots of films to get to, um, and that's where the skill comes in. Uh, there's also the kind of presentation skill, the skill that we have of putting on a show and that also takes time to learn, it takes time to kind of get the feeling for it, the rhythm for it. For me, I mean, in the situation where I had to sink or swim, I swam, <laughs> but I was still learning and I d- I'd say even now, I'm, I'm 16 years old and I'm still learning. Like what, can you give an example of something that like, yeah, maybe recently you kind of like, oh wow, I've never had that experience before? Oh, let me think. I mean, certainly... At the moment, it's a case of refreshing skills because we don't run film anywhere near as much as we used to. So we continually sort of, you know, when we've got some email print, um, there's many different sound formats. So you're having to just make sure that you're you're refreshing the skills and running, say, magnetic film or DTS. There's many sort of different modes or different ways to show a film. So it's those kind of things. But I'm... I'm definitely still learning because there are many ways, for instance, to tell uh, film stocks apart, but um, I only recently found out there was a way to uh, work out um, uh, polyester stock. And traditionally, I would uh, shine a light through the edge of it to work out whether it's polyester or acetate. But actually, you can get uh, two 3D polarised lenses from glasses and put those over the film. And if it shows a sort of oily rainbow colour, then you can be sure that it's polyester. So again, that was something I didn't know and uh, something I just picked up quite recently. First of all, what's the, like, the difference between polyester and acetate? Why use one over the other? Uh, well, acetate, um, so the sort of first space stock was nitrate, so that was the really flammable one. And then the uh, acetate film came in and it was safety stock, so it wasn't going to burst into flame, which is a good thing. It can get quite brittle, and as the uh, base breaks down, it does interact with the dyes as well, so it then uh, can turn pink. So a lot of films today haven't sort of weathered time very well, so they're kind of quite pinkish and stuff. But if you were to actually just pick up acetate film, you could pretty much just tear it very very easily. So with it, you get a lot of sort of split perforation, so it does take a lot more in the repairing element. Um, polyester was the latest film stock it came in sort of 90s it probably was around a little bit earlier but I remember it being sort of more uh, prominent in the late 90s 2000s it's incredibly tough Uh, you can tow a car with it a friend of mine has actually tried so um, he has proven it is that strong and I have seen it pull projectors over so in the in the instance of something going a bit wrong polyester stock's not the best for the projector because acetate will just split. I mean, that's not necessarily good for the film, but um, it's much kinder to the mechanics. <laughs> Whereas a polyester film will, um, yeah, can it can pull on things and cause damage, but it's a lot more hard wearing. And I've yet to see. Um, I mean, the base will break down, but I've yet to see it sort of lose color. So that's a, that's a bonus, I suppose. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, all the things you just said points to the fact that it's a very technical role. But do you also consider it an art as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, we um, the art form of projection is known as presentation, and all of that is involved in the showmanship of putting uh, a film onto an audience. And there's quite a few elements of presentation. There's keeping your 
booths or boxes clean, making sure there's no dust getting on the film, taking good care of the film, making sure it's checked really well, and all of that part. But then it's also um, tabs or curtains. Um, we call them tabs in our language. Um, so like curtains that cover the screen, um, lighting that looks nice in the auditorium when people come in. And it's about making all of these things work together to kind of drop the audience into a into a sleep, if you like, so they can go watch the film, they can forget their reality and just focus on the film. So it's our sort of job to kind of drop the people in and then bring them out afterwards back to reality. And if we've done that job well, people don't even know we're there. So it's an art form, but one that's not well known about temperature even as well, making sure the auditoriums are a good temperature for people. If it's too cold, too hot, you can't enjoy the film. You're thinking about the cold or hot. Mm. Yeah, I mean, our job is to basically keep you in the reality of the film. Um, and if anything is knocking you out of that reality, then we haven't done our job well and the film is not well presented. And I remember from the presentation you gave we um, at the BFI, you mentioned etiquette. And there were like a few rules and I remember one about like the curtains not allowed to be opened at a certain point are there any other like rules like that well yeah one of the so uh it was considered very rude uh to show a empty cinema screen to an audience so the idea is that the tabs close uh cover the screen and then the lighting goes over the tabs and they make it look lovely and then we will open the tabs right at the point where the logo you know the first logo of the film comes in and at the end of the film the tabs should just kiss just as the end you know, uh, credit fades up or the end logo fades up. So yes, during that point, really, no empty screen should be shown to an audience. I mean, it's very different nowadays, but that's something that we sort of, uh, especially most projectionists who work with film, try to keep sort of going. So yeah, there's a few few things like that. Uh, Non-sync music as well, sort of the domain of the projectionist. So this is the kind of music in the theatre when people walk into their films. And a lot of projectionists uh, choose the music very very carefully they'll have a really good think about it beforehand they'll try and um, match the music to the film and that means going through thousands and thousands of albums <laughs> to sort of see what would be the right mood um, and you've got to be careful you don't want to sometimes people will play the soundtrack of the film but generally we try not to do that because it takes away from the music in the actual film and it's a bit repetitive so you have to sort of think carefully about the music that's in the film and kind of reflect the mood if you like but not copy it or emulate it so yeah it's another sort of thing we do and you mentioned that you've been in the profession now for 16 years does it still retain that sense of magic and ceremony yeah absolutely there's even uh, almost a sense of i wouldn't call it nerves but a sense of sort of excitement or you're on edge a little bit yeah definitely and i think you need to kind of keep that fear because if you lose that you won't put on a good show the thing about projection is you have to check, check and check again. You have to continually check what you're doing just to make sure it's correct because so many elements of it have to work or fit together to make it work. If any one of those is out, then something will go wrong. So it's a case of really, really checking. And yeah, there's definitely a sort of sense of, oh, okay, show's about to start, you know. And you're a projectionist at BFI, BFI mm -hmm. South Bank. Yes. Um, can you talk through that role? Um, you know, what does it entail? What is the process of screening a film on 35mm and 70mm? Um, and what are the joys of screening something, particularly in uh, a cinema like NFT1? Um, which if no one's been to, it's just maybe describe it. It's just very grand, I think. I always kind of take an intake of breath when I go there. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so at the BFI, I'm uh, a technical uh, supervisor, so we, we don't tend to use the term uh, projection seminar. We haven't done since digital sort of taken over, and that's the case across the whole industry. So my job now is very, very varied. I work with digital uh, cinema, DCPs. Um, I work with conferencing, networking, lighting, design, lighting, um, sound engineering. So there's a whole sort of remit and even broadcast technologies, uh, digital beta and even live broadcast from satellites. So my role is very, very varied from day to day. Um, but in terms of showing a film, so the film come into our vaults area. So the first point we all need to do is check the film and make sure that there's nothing wrong with it. That means uh, going through every single reel and <laughs> checking every single perforation. So if I tell you there's four perforations a frame and 24 frames a second and the average film is an hour and a half, that's a huge amount of perforations you have to check. And when I say four perforations, that's top and bottom of the frame, so technically it's eight per frame. Uh, so that means running the film for our fingers from head to the tail of the film and making sure there's no split purse in there because a single split purse can actually split in the projector and stop the show. Uh, so you learn over the years to kind of feel that with your fingers and thumb mm. and yet any kind of sort of uh, inconsistency you have to stop, inspect and then make sure that it's, it's okay to run through the projector. So yeah, you can be repairing perforations, uh, redoing old joins, uh, making new joins. Uh, and then when you get near the end of the reel, you have to check the changeovers because uh, we work the changeover system at the BFI, which is the old style film projection and is basically the most kindest to the film. And only archives will allow their collections to be run in this, this way. So we sort of do this method. And that means checking the cue dots are in the correct position, making sure they're the right number of feet apart, because if we don't get do that, the timing of the changeover will be wrong. Uh, and then we mark the reels up. Uh, so we know what the film is, what the ratio is, uh, what the sound format it is, and sort of just a little bit more information about um, you know the lobes on the front, when to bring the sound in, and where the change up, what the changeover cues are, etc. So when the film's on the shelf and it's ready to be run, uh, just before the audience come in, the first thing we'll do is make sure the projector is very clean. Um, that's really really important because dust and dirt can cause scratching. Uh, to the film or it could just come on the film and just make it more dirty. We then have to match the aperture and the lens to the ratio of the film so that's very important so we have to make sure we've got the right ratios and we have a lot of different ratios so there's a lot of different lenses and apertures to put in and then we will get the first two reels out and when you change a lens um, it will never quite go back in the, the same position so it's important to then focus up the film so we do that before the audience come in we don't do that on the show because otherwise you'll sort of see this out-of-focus image come into focus. Right. And that's a bit of a faux pas in our profession. It's not considered a good thing to do. So we, we focus on the film uh, before the adults come in and just play through the first two reels just to make sure there's no other problems with sound or something that gets picked up. And then once we do that, we will set the masking. So the thing on the screen that basically... Um, it kind of just neatens the image up um, and it allows any overspill of light to be absorbed because it's basically material that um, you know absorbs light um, and we'll make that the shape of the ratio and make sure it's fixed and we'll go to the right position when we uh, start the film. And then we will check the light levels of the projectors just to make sure that the light is definitely the right level and it's going to be a nice even light. Because um, again, another faux pas is having a horrible flickering light. So we'll do all of that and that's just before doors open. And then I guess we will put the music on, get our film on and uh, yeah, be ready to start the show. 
and then on each changeover um, we'll be there we'll be there as well throughout checking the focus of the reel but on each changeover we have to be very very sort of on the ball because uh, the dot will only be there for four frames and if you think 24 frames a second that's an nth of a second that you have to see that Q dot and once you see that Q dot you start the motor on the second projector and then uh, next will come another Q dot and that's the point to open up on the next projector. So you kind of go in one projector, two projector, three projector, four projector to show the whole film. And then at the end, credits will come up, we'll bring the tabs and lights in and uh, put them on the sink back, back on and hopefully everyone's had a lovely show. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. That was so much more than I was expecting. Yeah, that was a lot of things that you obviously have to consider. Is it a challenge to consider that all the time and stay concentrated? I mean, I think we're sort of, we learn to do it. I mean, the way we work at the BFI is that we have quite a large team and uh, some some people will be working on certain things and some people will be working on others. But generally, most people, it, it's second nature to them. Uh, you know, it comes to them quite easily. So that just comes with learning and practice and the fear of uh, things going wrong. Now, obviously, there are a lot of kind of like industry challenges in the role in that um, there are certain parts that are no longer manufactured. Um, and I'm wondering how that impacts your work and kind of what projectors you're able to use and yeah, whether that makes you have to be more kind of thrifty or careful. Well, yeah, absolutely. We're in a very um, rocky territory at the moment with film um, since the digital switchover, which kind of the tipping point of which was about 2010. A lot of projectionists were made redundant, maybe 96, 97% of them. I mean, no one has the figures, we just don't know, but it was certainly a huge amount. And um, a lot of film prints, um, I mean, a lot were damaged, you know, after runs of films had happened, uh, a lot of them were thrown away or damaged anyway, but many of them were kept. But then over time, because real estate's really expensive, um, distributors started burning their prints and throwing them out. So the number of prints that were in circulation dramatically went down as well. I mean, over, over the years, over the decades, um, people that made projectors have kind of risen up and then disappeared again. But with, with regards to the digital takeover, there weren't any left. The last sort of manufacturers of projectors went into liquidation and either um, and survived that and went on to do digital things with their company or uh, just didn't rise up again. So we're in a position now where we have a lot of equipment, but... Uh, we can't necessarily restore it. And certainly the cinemas that did have 35 mil, I mean, it was very prevalent, you know, up until the late 2010s, uh, sold their projectors for scrap and they were melted down in sort of uh, in scrap yards in heaps. Um, and unfortunately, it meant also ac- that meant access to parts has become uh, incredibly difficult. So they're, they're very highly inflated now. Uh, and we're in a position now where, um, I mean, we have these top, uh, state-of-the-art projectors in NT1 that were not just mechanical and electronic, they were also um, computerised. And unfortunately, when they uh, broke, uh, no one was able to fix them. And we tried to track down uh, some of the people that had worked on them, and we sort of did and stuff, but we just uh, weren't able to kind of uh, uh, continue with it, because uh, if we can't keep them running, then that's that's difficult. So we've actually ended up going back and finding some older projectors um, who were collectors had kind of taken and looked after for a period of time and then were willing to give them to us, you know. Uh, and we, uh, we've got those now and uh, they're from the sort of uh, 1960s, I believe. So even older. 
Um, but the mechanical, the electronic, and we will be able to keep them running because we can fashion parts of them. Um, we can uh, we can deal with mechanics and we can deal with electronics. So that's that's where we're going to be okay. But it's still it's still very difficult because um, certain parts, and there are many different parts that um, we need to need to be there to show a film, including the sound processors, are just not supported anymore. We're having to sort of be really on our toes and spot problems as soon as they arise. And if we hear sort of a fan sounding a bit dodgy, we have to go in there straight away and sort of look at what's happening as the fan failing. Because if we leave that sort of fan, it will fail, the unit will overheat, um, parts will become damaged, we can't replace them. So it's things like that. Um, but it's certainly uh, a mission. I mean, I can tell you all of us have eBay accounts and we all have tracking <laughs> tracking sort of notices for things that might come up. Um, and as for prints, there's been a couple of distributors that have picked up prints, you know, uh, from other distributors. And uh, there's always also the National Archive and other archives around the world. So it's these places that are kind of preserving and storing prints. And it's these places that are allowing us to continue running film. And that's great. Um, and it also means then that we can run new films that come out, yeah, and for instance, uh, from Tarantino, because uh, uh, there are directors out there who do still want to keep working on film, uh, and they should be. <laughs> so, And how does that sense of peril change how you feel about your profession? Do you feel like a, a, bit, like a bit of an endangered species? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I feel quite secure in my current role. Um, I'm certainly not worried about that. And, you know, I think in certain places it will be fine. But our sense of our collective identity has changed a lot. So it's kind of quite difficult to know where we are in that respect, I think. For instance, being known as a technician, not a protectionist, that's, is, you know, it's a bit of a change. Uh, I, I mean, I think technician's probably correct because it shows... I mean, I mean, I get that contention could be anything, but in, ter- in terms of what we do, it does show the exactly the wealth of things we do. Um, because projection is only sort of one element of that, I think. But uh, or at least traditional film projection. But I do worry about certain aspects because there was a kind of culture and even a language to our profession which I feel is going to get lost or is getting lost at the moment. So I do worry about that side of it. To give you an example, if you're an audio-visual technician, which is a separate profession, when they're talking about projectors, they're talking about lights. And when they're talking about the light, they're talking about lumens. Because generally, when you're an audio-visual technician, you're taking your projector somewhere and you're kind of projecting you know, whatever it is and whatever job it is. So it's um, they tend to measure the light that's coming out the lens. Um, and that's what lumens are. Uh, projectionists use foot lambets because uh, and foot lambets are a measure of light being reflected off a screen because we are always in a uh, situation where there is a screen and a projection box and a very sort of set setting uh, that's the terminology we use sort of thing so it, yeah it's just things like that <laughs> the differences small differences and do you wish that there was more knowledge around what you do or more recognition for the role of what you do Absolutely. I think <laughs> I, I think the sort of nail in the projection coffin has been the fact that our job is to be invisible. If we're good at our jobs, we're invisible and that's what we're supposed to be. And we take pride in that. And uh, none, none of the people that work in projection are never naturally people that speak out or very strongly confident people. I mean, I don't want to generalise, but generally um, a lot of the people I meet are sort of suited to that kind of invisible world. And um, I think in some respects that's kind of what harmed it. 
But that's the reason I sort of started speaking out, because I feel that that's one way to try and help preserve the profession, you know, keep things going. And people can't invest in things unless they know they're there. So if, um, I've never failed to meet or see anyone not be interested in what I do. You know, when I take them up, the, their faces are just, you know, a story. And I thought that it's definitely true to say that a lot of people don't understand the work or the sheer amount of work that goes into how we present a film. And do you think there's a case for more training as well, like training up a new generation? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is one of my uh, biggest, you know, I, I really want to see me. I'm one of the youngest in the profession and basically one of the last. And I, I'm in my, basically my early 30s. I would really love to see um, sort of new people come in the profession. But the difficulty there is that when I started in film projection, I was running five or six films a day, you know, one after the other. And now, even though the BFI um, has a very strong amount of film that we show, I, I believe the programme something like 60% digital across the year and uh, 40% celluloid, which is a huge amount. It's probably uh, more than anywhere in the UK. Um, but that still means that I'm not running film daily. I'm, you know, I, I may be running film once or twice a week. Um, it could even be once or twice a month. So it's, it's not really set. But um, that ability to learn and to practice and to pick up is just not there for anyone who's coming in who's new and most cinemas will need their projections to hit the ground running so there's not time to take anyone on and train them up as such and we have to be very careful because a lot of the jobs are very unstable a lot of them are sort of uh, zero hours or like freelance or maybe one or two days a week or something like that so you can't train people up for jobs that just aren't there in the industry it's not fair on them and I'd be loath to do that to someone and over the years I've had a lot of people say oh, I'm really interested in doing what you do but when you actually sit them down and say okay I'm, not, I'm gonna give you the spiel this is the situation this is how it really is um not a single one of them has decided to take it up so <laughs> I mean uh, if people want to dabble that's probably uh the best way to do it but definitely not to rely on it as a job um at least for now because I just don't think um the industry's stable enough to to do that and do you see that return to celluloid happening? Like, as you say, with, with the BFI 40%, and a lot of those screenings, when they are on, are sellouts because of the kind of unusual event nature of seeing something on celluloid. So do you think, yeah, there, there will be an appetite for it in the future? I think there's definitely an appetite, but it, I've certainly... Uh, I'm definitely not an advocate for the industry sort of going back to celluloid or anything like that. I mean, the industry went digital and it's absolutely the right decision to make. People often really aghast when I say that, but um, it would have been ludicrous to have not, you know, made that jump to film. Uh, sorry, a digital film. The thing is with film, it degrades after each one in the film projector. But with a DCP, a digital film print, it's as pristine as the first day the cinema got it. Um, so there are many benefits to digital and that's great. But in terms of celluloid, I think there will always be a niche market for it. And it's that that I really back. A film print is is an item. It's a physical item. Digital isn't an item. It's, it's abstract. You can't really, is it in the projector? Is it on the server? Is it on the drive that it comes in on? You know, where is it? Whereas film print actually has a sort of uh, life to it. You know, it's been here, it's been there, it's been shipped here and there and it's uh, done this performance it's done that performance um and that kind of story of its life is kind of on its own skin as well <laughs> you know it's through bits of dirt and scratches and stuff 
So, you know, when you're putting on a really rare performance of a print that's not been seen in 30 years, you know, that is an event and people buy into that and they want to see it. Um, there's also the aesthetic difference. I mean, I don't see digital as aggression, I see it as a separate medium and certainly there's aesthetic considerations that are very different. I find celluloid warmer, I find it sort of more organic. Um, I like the movement of the projector, <laughs> you know. You know, when you first look at a film print after looking at digital, it looks really out of focus, but when your eyes adjust, just uh, there's just a really nice richness to it and it tends to sort of meld into the screen where digital seems to sort of sit on top. It's quite sort of cold. Um, I mean, it's not going to be like vinyl because vinyl was a home medium. I mean, film was in the sort of eight mil realm, but that's not really ever going to happen again. But in terms of going out to cinema for an experience, I think, yes, there's definitely an appetite for it. And I think as well, as long as the me it's a medium that uh, filmmakers should be able to work on if that's what they want to do, I think it's unfair to say to a director, oh, you have to shoot it on this. You know, if they want to have their film on celluloid and have that look, they should be able to have that. If they want to distribute it, they should be able to do that. If they want to have it projected, they should be able to do that. So as long as people want to see film, I'm willing to project it. <laughs> Have there been, I mean, we talked about disasters earlier, have there been any screening highlights? I really like Morgan Fisher's work. Um, there's a film he made called Projection Instructions, and it's it's a great little 16-year-old film. I don't know if you know it, but basically, um, it's basically a projectionist film, I think. Um, it comes up with instructions on the screen when the audience is sat in there. So it'll be things like, turn the lamp off, throw the focus out, um, rack up, rack down, and these are all things that we can manipulate the projector to do, um, to actually show that we're there. And I really like this film because A, it's showing <laughs> what we do, and it's showing that we're there, but we're also having a dialogue with the audience and with the film as we do it. Uh, and I'd loved the film before, I'd only seen it digitally, so to have the opportunity to project it on 16mm to an audience is just amazing, so yeah. That's my <laughs> amazing. That's that my sounds, highlight. <laughs> sounds really awesome. On top of all of this, uh, you're also a professional artist. Yes. <laughs> um, and what what kind of art do you produce? Um, and what are your current kind of interests in that domain? Um, so that's uh, Morgan Fisher's work is a sort of a experimental film work, and that's sort of the area that I really like and really enjoy, and it's also where my own work lays. I'm really a fan of structural materialism, and this is a kind of movement that looked at medium, the medium of film, over the sort of image of film and over the uh, being sucked into the reality of the film sort of thing. Um, it made the medium more prominent in the works, and my work has sort of uh, basically followed that sort of idea and I make sort of filmic uh, sculptures that make people think about medium um, over content and I often use text uh, to sort of help with that and uh, the sculptural aspects of the work kind of help with that and I also like to get the audience touching and feeling the film and the medium because many people don't get to do that <laughs> so um, I really like people in, uh, engaging with my work in that way. Do you work out at a studio at home? Um, at home. <laughs> um, I, yeah, uh, over time I've sort of had um, a, a studio in Hattonwick that I had at one point and stuff, but um, at the expense of London is very expensive, so I often end up sort of working at home with my work, yeah. But I sort of, uh, I'm sort of spending a bit more time now sort of uh, promoting uh, the profession and doing what I can around that. I set up an organisation with a colleague called the Film and Projection Heritage Network and we're looking at sort of networking with people together, cinemas together, people that want to still 
continue to show film and we're kind of working out what the best way to go about doing that is uh, so we've been building websites and stuff so at the moment my focus has been on that. Do you find that it is quite a sort of isolated profession where people go about their business in their particular cinema and they don't actually have that many dialogues with each other? Absolutely um, it's a very funny um yeah, it's very siloed in a way. But then also projectionists are always they're always like sort of brothers and sisters. When you come across another projectionist, there's always a bond sort of there. There's also sort of a bit of rivalry at times, I think. <laughs> you know, other projection teams sort of occasionally revel in uh, something they hear that was going wrong or something. Um but I think in some respects it's all sort of banter as well. You know, I don't think there's any sort of meanness to it or anything. But then it's obviously important to have you as someone, a representative of the South Bank, uh, as someone that is saying, okay, well, let's like create more access and create more knowledge. I think that's kind of, you know, hopefully it will have that trickle down effect of more people opening up about what it is they do and how perhaps we can better support this medium. Yeah, definitely. I really hope. I really hope so. Yeah. And also, is there a myth um, that you particularly want to bust about being a technician? It's a lot of myths. <laughs> I think what I kind of said earlier about, um, I mean, maybe it's not such a myth, but there's, I think there's some kind of a myth that people don't think we do much or they don't mm. understand what we do, so they don't, they don't tend to think about the work that goes into certain things. And I think that's quite a common myth, even for people that work with us that aren't in injection, they don't necessarily understand the sort of um, background that goes into getting something on screen or how that works and we have to sort of uh, technically manage all of that and work out how to do all of it and it, it is quite an extensive sort of uh, job in that respect. Um, I think one of the other myths kind of came from projection itself and that women can work in the projection world as such. There was sort of a myth that women would be a distracting to the male projectionists or um, we were too weak to lift anything or to carry things so we couldn't work in projection. And I was told I had a lot of those myths for a very long time. And occasionally I still come across it. <laughs> and uh, so that's one of the ones that, yeah, bust it. <laughs> is it quite a physical job? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely it definitely is. Um, it definitely used to be a lot more physical, especially when I worked with the plastic systems, you have to lift an entire print at once. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, things are heavy, but it, um, I've met women projectionists who are incredibly tiny, incredibly thin, and they just, you know, they can just sort of lift prints with a with a very quick clip and get it mm. on a platter. Yeah, if anyone says to a woman, you know, you're too weak or whatever, it's, it's not correct so <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. busted. <laughs> and one that I think I hold is that you know please correct me because I know I'm going to be wrong um what do you do when the film is actually on because obviously there's a lot of preparation required and presumably you're there like making sure nothing's going on as it's screening but I kind of have the idea that you sort of sit back and maybe enjoy the film alongside the audience i I've never been able to do that. I, I find it very difficult to... I, I couldn't really watch film when I'm running it um, because of the fear of getting lost. Now, the thing is, each reel uh, in, in real to real projection is approximately 18 minutes long. So uh, once you've gone over to your projector, uh, whichever reel it is, 
first thing we do is checking focus and just making sure that the racking is correct. Um, the racking is where the picture is positioned on the screen. Um, if your racking's out, your picture will be halfway down the screen, which is not a good Lovely. thing. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you're checking that, you're adjusting the aperture plate slightly if it needs adjusting, but I mean, hopefully it wouldn't do, but um, you're checking the focus. And when you're confident that the image has got over fine and it's good, um, your next thing to do would be to take the reel that you just finished running, uh, take it to the makeup bench. You then need to go back to the projector that will be next. You need to do a thorough cleaning of it, which is going to take about five minutes, maybe six minutes. You then need to get the next reel. You then need to put it on the machine. You then need to lace it up. Um, you then need to check that um, and make sure everything is in the right place. You need to then roll it down to the correct amount of time. You then need to go back and rewind the reel that you took off and again, check for anything, any damage that may have occurred or you know any, any problems. If the print's going away from the cinema, you might then need to actually break it down uh, into its film can so it can be ready to be transported back at the end. So that kind of takes up your 18 minutes and then you're there waiting for the queued up for the next reel. So there's not really time to do anything else in that time. Or at least I find. <laughs> so, I mean, if you've got someone else with you, there might be a bit more time, but um, you might sort of have two or three minutes, but generally you're going to be looking at the film print uh, on screen because uh, that's what your job is. Myth so. busted. <laughs> um, and finally, what is a film that you've seen recently? Um, can be an old release or a new one from a woman director that you think is an undervalued gem? So um, I, going back within the vein of my uh, experimental film and kind of expanded cinema, um, I don't know if you know of it, but uh, Annabelle Nicholson, she did a film performance called Real Time. Mm. Um, and it was done in the 70s in a room in the ICA. And um, there's only very little documentation of it, uh, maybe a couple of photos that survive and just the description of sort of what happened. So I've not been fortunate enough to see it or any kind of documentation of these um, other than these small photographs of it. Basically, she had a uh, film projector uh, projecting just a light out onto her, casting her shadow on the wall. And she had a sewing machine in front of her. And she had a loop of film that sort of uh, was quite large and sort of went sort of around the room. Uh, and on that film was an image of her, so, you know, sewing a sewing machine. And um, she basically uh, ran the film through the sewing machine and then the film would continue round and go through the film projector. And if you can imagine, there was no thread in the sewing machine, it was just the needle uh, mm -hmm. puncturing the film. And, uh, you know, over time, this loop would get more holes in it and it would, uh, the image on screen would show these holes and these kind of uh, sort of dense appearing and the light would just sort of start filling uh, the screen. And it would keep going round and occasionally it would be repaired where it snapped and it would keep going round and round and round until basically it snapped and it couldn't be uh, shown anymore. And I really like it because it's a sort of, it's a feminist piece because it's bringing the sort of hidden work of the sewing machine and women's work into this kind of male domain of film and kind of filmmaking uh, and bringing the two together and 
what I love about it. And it's it's not actually, I haven't seen it directly written up in this way. I mean, the connection with the sewing machine, the projector there is very, very strong. But the bit I like about it is the, the mechanism that's in the sewing machine. It's the same mechanism that's in the film projector. So to get that start-stop motion of the needle going up and down, it's the same start-stop motion that you have in the film projector to project each frame. And it comes from a, a sort of piece called the intermittent mechanism, which is known by projectionists as the heart of the projector. It's actually a, a small sort of Maltese cross-shaped uh, gear, if you like. Mm. And I actually have that uh, tattooed on my back. Uh, so yeah, it's this kind of uh, piece that's connecting the two things together. And that's why I really like it. Amazing. Thank you so much, <laughs> Alexa. I feel so privileged to have gotten to speak to you and feel like I've learned so much. No problem. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. Next week, I'll be chatting to a composer, which I'm really excited to share. Uh, But in the meantime, please do peruse through all 40 of my previous episodes on iTunes, Spotify or Acast. And uh, if you'd like to leave a review uh, on iTunes, that would also be absolutely fine. And also in the meantime, have a great week.